Hi, I'm Joseph Fung, co-founder and CEO at Uvaro, and you're listening to the SME Stories Podcast. You are now listening to the next great small business podcast. Welcome to the SME Stories Podcast, where it is all about small businesses in Canada. And here's your host, Ken Alfred. Hey everybody, thanks for downloading the show. We had a great episode today with Joseph Fung. Joseph is the CEO of Yuvaro, a tech sales career accelerator. A little bit about Yuvaro. The Yuvaro Tech Sales Training Program has helped hundreds of people upgrade their careers and step into technology. Their graduates land roles within 17 days of graduation on average and prove to have about 2.2 times the increase in their income. So it's a very interesting program. I'm looking forward to hear more about it. So a little bit about Joseph himself. Joseph is actually a University of Waterloo computer engineering graduate. He has a, he's a five-time technology founder and CEO with multiple successful exits and speaks frequently on the topics of sales leadership, diversity, and corporate social responsibility. So we're going to have a very interesting episode today. I think we're going to have a lot of great stories from Joseph. So sit back and absorb. All right. We have Joseph Fung from Uvaro. Joseph, how are you doing, my friend? I am doing well. Thanks for having me on, Ken. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Absolutely. Same here. Same here. So I can tell with all stories here, uh, you know, Joseph is a serial entrepreneur that's going to give us a lot of education on what we can do here. And uh, he has a really interesting company called Uvaro. So Uvaro, what's your story? Uh, Uvaro is a career success company. And people always wonder what that means. Like, what, what the heck is career success? But I think our mission speaks well. You know, we want the world's professionals to have more fulfilling careers from their first job to their last. And we do that with a combination of like just-in-time job training, uh, job matching, and then ongoing career coaching. And so we get to see people launch amazing careers every day and play a small part in their journey towards success. Oh, that's great. And like, I think we just talked about just briefly though. So this is all for not just what your, what your, what your, your program actually does. It's not just for the average person wanting to start their own business. But if, if the people would for some reason, they say, oh, I just want to grow within my own. Cause I guess it's always that what, you know, who, you know, kind of thing in terms of, oh, I'm going to be stuck in this job. I don't, if I want to move up, I don't know how, or how can I best present myself or how can I quote unquote sell myself? Cause it, as much as people sometimes cringe when they hear sales, they're like, Oh no, is, 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 he gonna, is this going to be another used car salesman kind of sales program where I'm going to be like, <laughs> you know, doing something or just something that they can actually apply in almost everyday life, not just for business or for the work, right? Totally. You're absolutely right. So kind of laying it, laying it down, most of our members, about three quarters of them go on to sales related roles, most often at tech companies, uh, but that desire to have a fulfilling career extends way beyond simply sales professionals. So we have, we have entrepreneurs, we have executives, we have people that are in career transition, we have the full gamut. And I think the part that's so powerful is that we didn't think about it just as a, hey, what job do you want? Or what training do you want? We think about the whole gamut of career success. And so we help you provide that, uh, help you by providing that experience, the coaching, a community of peers, uh, and then the tools to make it possible. Um, one of our members put it best. He's like, I came into Uvaro and I wished I had one of those networks from like a Harvard MBA. Uh, and I realized I've got something just like it. And if we can deliver that to people that are in everyday roles, be it in banking or in a sales role or like home improvements, like that's amazing. So it's a, it's a great thing to be able to do every day. 
Oh, that's great. And so how did this whole thing get started? So what, uh, where did it come from? Like you said, you said you found a, a need and then just, did you just so happen to be like, okay, there's this need. All right, let's start, let's start, let's call this company Yvaro and let's how to do it. So walk us through, walk the listeners through how the whole process kind of started. Yeah, that's, a, that's always a tough one. I'm going to try and keep it tight. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I've had the good fortune to start a couple of companies and the steel cable that's always unified all of these is I've always wanted to create businesses and places where people can do their best work ever. I got, you know, that energy, that vibe, all of that. And a couple most recent companies, you know, we tried to do it, not just by creating a great culture, but building products that solve that. So immediately before this, we were in the HR tech space. We built amazing HR software. This company, we actually started as a pure software company too. And we said, if people want to do great work, how do they get started? And most companies start off by saying, hey, memorize this manual, memorize these videos, read these docs, and now you're on your own. Um, we built software that were AI-powered cheat sheets. It, imagine you having a cheat sheet on how to do your job and it would update itself. And our best customers who use the software every day, who are hiring tons of people and were the happiest, were all complaining. Not, not about our software, but they were complaining about uh, hiring people is really tough and uh, training people is really tough. So they were, you know, you know, buying services and recruiters and they were unhappy. They were buying trainers and then they were unhappy. And we said, hey, we can use our technology to try and help take the playbook you have, the cheat sheets you have, ramp people up and then introduce them to you. And so we started Uvaro as a bit of a side project to make life better for our customers. And... And it took off like crazy. The first course that we ran, we had 800 people apply and then the pandemic hit and everyone wanted to change careers. And we realized actually this is the business. It's not just the software. It's the transformation that we deliver. Uh, so a little bit of serendipity, a little bit of being open to that side hustle, even at the corporate level and a lot of lucky timing and great customers. No, oh, that's great to hear. And I don't know if Lucy's heard that, but it started off as a side hustle. So it wasn't like he had this you know, this uh, long-term plan and then built it that way. It's just that he just saw a need and it just so happened timing and everything. And now, like you said, first court, 800 people signing up. That's, that's amazing. You know, I bet a lot of people on the, on this listening right now said, I would love 800 clients right away. I'm like, well, it's not that easy, obviously, but you know, if, when you have a good product or service, you know, you attract the right kind of clients, right? It absolutely was. And honestly, in many ways it was, you got to put in a lot of work. You got to try really hard, but it was the right product at the right time. Um, I mean, at the time, our business, our software company had 25 people and we, we had this inkling that it could work. And I remember reaching out to one of my past employees. I was like, hey, hey, Paul, are you up for helping me out with a bit of an experiment? And so we did this on the side. We didn't want to get artificially positive signals. And so we had a code name for the company. We set up a different email domain name. Our first website was sketchy as stink because we wanted to make sure the product resonated. We didn't just want people to sign up for it because they happened to know who I am or who our, our software company was. Um, but yeah, like having a very rapid iterating, hacky mentality, you know, agile approach made it very easy to learn quickly. And then we were able to jump in with both feet. Oh, that's great to hear. And, and so when we think of sales, we think of different techniques and different practices we should do. So in your opinion, Joseph, what are the top three sales practices that every, anybody should be practicing? Absolutely. It's, it's such a good question because people often come to us and like, Hey, uh, they'll talk about methodologies. 
Should we use challenger sales? Should we use spin selling? Uh, or they'll talk about technology. Should we use Salesforce or HubSpot? Or they'll ask, what's the most important process? Is it the closing? Is it the discovery? Um, when I'm talking to entrepreneurs and when I'm talking to business owners or looking, talking to people who are looking to get into the field, I try to kind of push a lot of those aside and get to the root of what makes a really successful sales professional. And these characteristics actually make somebody a successful professional in a numerous roles, just numerous roles. The top three characteristics that set somebody up for success, first and foremost, the ability to empathize with the customer. Now, I don't mean they've had the same experience as the customer, but they have the ability to actually hear, listen, and imagine they're in that same boat. Like one of the customers we spoke to early on, you know, she said, like, if I don't solve this problem, I, I feel like my, my boss is going to cut a finger off. I mean, like jarring visual aside, but like, geez, <laughs> that visceral feeling like, okay, can you sit in and imagine like, can you be that worried about this problem? It's so like empathy yeah, is number one. And that's going to serve you in any role. Um, yeah. And it's funny. Sorry to get there for empathy. Yeah. Is the, you know, it's not even that complicated in that thing for my people might hear. They might think you said all these different, all these different steps in order to sell something or, or just to be, to sell yourself and just honestly listening and, and like I said, empathizing with them, even if you don't have the exact experience, but just because a lot of times your clients just, they need a, they have a problem that they need solved. And, but before you, before they're considering investing with you, they just need you to understand what is, what it is that they're going through in some way, shape or form. Because if you can understand it, because if all you're thinking of is while they're talking, you're zoning them out and just waiting for them to stop talking that you're ready to start saying, okay, well, here's product and service A, B or C. Right. <laughs> it's going to cost you this much. Right. So it's like, no, that, that, that you don't want to go to the solution right away. Feel it. Cause you might think it's one thing during the problem when they're venting about what it is, but then you feel like it could, I, I, it could just actually switch to something else. You're like, Oh, they said, this is the initial problem, but in actuality, it's actually this problem over here. And so if I went with, if I went with my first instinct was to start selling them on that first problem, but this is the secondary problem is the real problem. That's the problem. Then, you know, then they're gonna be like, oh man, he's going to keep pitching me over and over again. And they're not going to, they're not wanting to disclose what the real problem is. That's it. That's totally it. And even better when you're empathizing, when you focus on listening and empathizing, it's really easy to ask yourself, does my solution solve their problem? And in your heart of hearts, if you say, no, it doesn't, you should just stop selling. Like go and find someone who has a problem that you solve. You're going to be a more successful sales professional. That customer is going to be happier. And there is nothing more authentic than saying, you know, I get your problem. And I don't think our product is the right solution. Like, wow. Talk about building trust. Well, yeah. Because if, if people will invest you, if they like, you know, you and trust you kind of thing. So if, if all they think is, I don't want to talk because they're going to keep pitching me the next product or service. It's not going to work. And even to try to come up with something custom for it, just because if that's not what you normally do, and then you say, yeah, we can definitely do that. And then after you climb the deal, you have to find someone, okay, we, we have a new problem now. So our product line is this, but we need to add something else just because for this mm -hmm. particular client, you know, it's one of those things that, well, why would you do that? You know, focus on really rolling out your product or service in the most efficient way possible versus if everything is custom to that effect, that every single client is every single custom thing, you're just going to, you're going to spin your wheels and you're just going to burn totally. it out because then you're, you're not going to have any stability, right? So next question I want to find is then, so a lot of people, when they do startups, you know, they're, they're thinking, all right, they just want to start their company and start, you know, selling the product or service, whatever. But 
they don't really have an idea of culture. So in your, in your, in your opinion, Joseph, what are the keys to defining and scaling a successful startup culture? Oh, it's such a great question. Cause, uh, I, you'll pr you've probably seen this. Like I find this every few years, some CEO writes a blog post, something along the lines of like, you can't create culture, culture happens or culture emerges. And, and when I see those, it, it tells me that that CEO never took culture seriously. And now they've got a, a hot mess that they're trying to get their arms wrapped around. Because I disagree vehemently. You can absolutely define and create culture. Um, the hard part is starting early and starting with the right open mind. Um, one of the things we've done with every company that we've launched right at the get-go is we wrote down the artifacts. Sometimes it was a set of policies. Sometimes it was a simple statement. Sometimes it was a list of rules. I was like, what is the culture we want to create? Not who are we, what do we stand for, but what is the culture that we hope to create? Uh, and if you write those down on day one, A, you've got a bit of an earth start to aim for. And you've got, you know, the articulation of, you know, what you hope to become. Number two, you've got this clear gap. You know, you say, hey, this is what I want to be. It's really easy to look back at yourself now and say, hey, am I living up to that? And if you're consistently saying, hey, here's where I want to be. Here's where I am. You will bring those closer. It's like what measure gets done. You got to have that end goal from day one to move in the right direction. Um, but last but not least, you're giving every team member you bring on board the flag they can wave. The issue is if you don't write it down, they're going to just pick up a flag and wave it. If you're a startup that raised a bunch of money, that flag might be something like the free lunches you provide. Like, I'm sorry, your lunch might be really great, but that's not a good sign of culture. Um, if you're a bootstrap, you're doing it as a side hustle. So you're doing your work over beers in the evening. If you don't actually write down the culture, the flag they'll pick up is like beers in the evening is how we work. And Again, maybe I like, I like a beer in the evening. That's not necessarily a good hallmark of culture. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. write it down in a shareable way and then empower everybody to be that flag bearer of your culture. We, I think that brings up a really good point. Cause I remember one of my previous podcasts, one of them says, uh, one of my, one of my guests actually was talking about, you know, you'd be surprised. Cause I think a lot of owners like to try to do things themselves, especially when they're starting out and mm -hmm. when they start bringing people on board, you know, it's like, okay, I'm just going to kind of manage them or anything, but and they, they almost kind of get in, get in the own company's way, if, if you know what I mean. So that the, the people you hire, if they believe in that vision, in that culture, they can maybe take what you had an idea and just make it 10x better, right? Just so because much. they're they're following you and they're loyal to you. So, you know, really think about that, right? Don't just try to hold everything close to your chest, right? Because you're afraid of, oh, this person's going to mess up and I can't trust anybody but myself. But really relying on your people and really trusting your judgment and really understanding it as well is really good. So so a little question about this. So I hear this question a lot where it comes to, all right, should I focus on scaling up or should I really focus on, you know, maximizing my sales? Can you do both? Or what would you do if you're, if you're a new startup? What do you think should be the focus? Uh, I think the, the right way to think about it is that every great startup, every great company really is a two engine playing, like building the product or the service that you're selling and then selling it. Uh, if you don't have both engines running, that plane can't fly. Maybe you can get by, you can glide, you can land safely, maybe. But if you really want to soar, you need both of those engines going. So I would always start with that selling and that customer side of things because when you start a company, the part that's so hard, I, and I say this having fallen into this trap multiple times, 
when you first start a company, you've got an idea of the problem you solve and the way to solve it, but you're wrong. I've been wrong every single time. And the way my customers use my product is different than what I expected. The problem it solves is different. The, the, the right solution is different. So you have to change features. So your job is you got to shorten that learning time. And you do that by selling, by going and talking to customers. You know, what's your problem? Here's how I think I can solve it. Is that good? And all of those are invaluable data points and you'll just move faster. Wow, that's interesting to hear. So, so you've been, so Navarro, like Navarro is how old right now? Like you guys have been around? Uh, two and a half years. Two and a half years. And how big are, how big is your team that you have working on it right now? I mean, as much yeah. as you'd like to say that Joseph is running everything, I'm sure he has some help. Yeah. So we are 60 people full time. Uh, and on top of that, our instructors and our coaches are uh, a network of contractors. And there's about another 20 or so there. Okay, pretty good. And so what kind of sales or growth do you expect to see in the next year or so? Like, do you expect to see a massive amount, incremental growth? Which, how, how do you see it? We've been, we've been roughly tripling uh, each year. Uh, and we expect to do about the same over the next 12 months. Oh, triple. Great. It, <laughs> it is an intense, crazy time. Yes. Yes, that's good. And what about plans for expansion? Like you said, you have the, the right now you have about 60-ish or so. Are, are all these remotes, are these kind of hybrid workplaces? you have a physical location? Are you looking to do that? Uh, I love the question because it's been such a journey for us. When we founded the company, yes, we had a physical location. We're in Canada, Kitchener-Waterloo. Uh, when the pandemic kicked off, we pivoted from being a remote-friendly company to a remote-first company. Now, we still have a number of people in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. I'm here. That's great. Um, but we also have a lot of team members who are spread out. We've got like the Bay Area, just inside Oakland, Vietnam, Nigeria. Our CFO is in Barcelona. Uh, we're a very distributed team. And that comes with its own difficulties and challenges, but it's been such a huge enabler. Oh. But the most important question though, Joseph, is when is the holiday party and when are you going to, and where's everyone going to go? Where's, where is, are you going to go to Waterloo? You're going to go to Barcelona? You're going to go, where, where's the big team uh, luncheon together? This, it's such a fun question because we do things differently. Uh, we don't actually do a holiday party. We do a birthday party. One of no. the being a road first company, we have such a diversity of backgrounds, ethnicities, faiths, everything. And so saying, hey, we're going to do a holiday party, it's kind of elevating one above others. Uh, even if you make it non-denominational, the time of year is it. And the reality is if you're doing something in person, uh, here in Canada, something in the December time period, everything's I mean, expensive and the weather's crap. So yeah. <laughs> we celebrate our company's birthday, which is in June. And so we do run like events, gifts, things like that. We do a lot of virtual content, uh, but we do it in June. Uh, and that way it's tied to the company and the team and the people around us, uh, not just to a specific calendar date. The company birthday. Interesting mm -hmm. idea. I've never, I've never heard about stuff like that, but I'm like, that's maybe we should more do that because it also it helps as well because especially during the December time frame, my goodness, trying to get any kind of holiday party thing is just they know that they can triple charge you almost pretty much, right? Totally. As well, we most of our customers are in sales. December <laughs> is quarter end, year end. And if we're all <laughs> distracted at a holiday party or hung over from a holiday party, we're not there to support them at our best. So yeah. That lets us focus on make sure we support our customers in the right way. Interesting. So now with this diverse workforce that you have right now, so what are the kinds of expenses that you're probably seeing then versus some other companies that whether they're brick and mortar or they're fully remote, like the use that you have to guys have to go through running something else like a global operation almost. 
It's interesting. There's a lot of people look at the obvious cost savings, like we don't have rent, we don't have facilities, so it's true. Um, the reality is that you make up with that. You've got a lot of travel, so that's a very real thing. We need to invest in people's home office environment. And, you know, some people are fortunate enough to have some dedicated workspace. Others don't, which means that sometimes we're paying for co-working space, we're paying for equipment at home, you know, sometimes even minor renovations. Uh, and as well, when you're in a remote first environment, it's really easy to blend your work environment with your living environment. And if you're not great at setting those boundaries, and honest thing, we're all terrible. It is a growth journey for all of us. Uh, mental health is a big concern. So we invest a lot in our mental health supports, downtime, uh, our vacation time. We have an unlimited PTO policy, uh, paid time off. And we complement that with a minimum time off policy to make sure people are taking that space. Um, so that's typically where those expenses end up showing up. So it's not so much lining the, the, the pockets of an office uh, owner, uh, so much as kind of giving more of those benefits directly to our employees. No, I think that was a really good idea. Like in terms of that, I know when I, when I've, when the pandemic first hit, uh, I was very lucky where I was working where they said, here's, here's a credit that you guys can use to do your home office, whether it's monitors, whether it's, uh, you know, headphones or anything like that. Although I'll make this funny, this story brief. I didn't realize at the time. So they said, okay, we're going to give you a certain credit for, you know, to do something for your office. So of course I'm going to be, okay, well, I'm going to buy some monitors. I'm going to buy some headphones and, you know, and, and I think, okay, I'll just expense it to the company. And then the, I kid you not, Joseph, an email right afterwards, I purchased all these things. They said, yep. And just as an explanation for the program, here is where the, here's the catalog that you can use to order stuff from. Are you serious? That was the, that's the only approved one. And it's a big oh company. My so what, it wasn't like a, a, you know, it was a big catalog, right? It was from a big well-known company. It's Grand and Toy. So it's like, okay, we know that's the case. But I'm like, oh, so all this stuff I just <laughs> invested, I'm like, I can't use it. Or I can't claim it back. So I was like, okay, I just bought a chair. So uh, that was pretty much it. But it's nice to hear because not a lot of offices did that, right? And especially because at that time, we didn't know when anyone's going to be going back to the office. I think now we're slowly starting to get that going now, right? But uh, the fact totally. that you guys were ahead of the curve and just said, you know, let's let's invest in that, uh, invest in our people so that give them the tools that they need to do their job correctly, then yeah, that, that's really great to hear. So excellent. So you meant you talked about stuff that people don't normally see. Now, this is not a social media podcast. So what social media tools do you guys use? And uh, how does it help your business? Totally. Uh, I mean, Obviously, being in a sales-related space, we make a liberal use of LinkedIn. So that's you know one of the tools that we all use at all levels of the business. Um, beyond that, in terms of general social media, it's a lot of the usual suspects. We put a lot of content on YouTube, Instagram, uh, TikTok as well for our video content. Uh, we also make good use of Twitter and Facebook, especially from an advertising perspective. Um, in terms of that impact on the business, first and foremost is lead generation. Uh, I mean, a lot of our members find us through search and social. So social media is really critical on that. Uh, but most importantly, we use it for strategic purposes as well. Like when we're considering new courses, we're considering new offerings, we're looking for experts to bring in, we leverage social media for that. Um, so a really good example. We are, uh, am I allowed to talk about this? Yes. Uh, we're launching a new account executive program. And one of the ways that we brought in you know, like instructors, peers that were kind of making those connections, uh, was reaching out to our network on Twitter, on LinkedIn to validate curriculum, content, employer partners. Um, and so we use it for our strategic planning as well. 
Yeah, you know, LinkedIn is actually a very a tool that not a lot of people have considered. I never really considered at the time as well. But the funny thing is I've landed a few like side gig projects through LinkedIn just just cause, right? And I, I'm like I, I mentioned to the, some listeners here, but aside from this podcast I'm doing right now, I also do voiceover work and I found a client just through that where I'm just narrating their YouTube videos. So I was like, wow. And uh, another thing that, uh, you know, this one will be released a little bit later. So this is, we'll see if this happens or not, where I'm in discussions with, uh, with another podcast that wants me to be a co-host for them. And uh, it's basically about the Toronto Blue Jays, right? Mm -hmm. So between you and me, Joseph, I am a casual fan of, of the Toronto Blue Jays. <laughs> I, I want them to win. I remember them back in 1992, 1993, where they actually won the World Series. I don't know if you follow baseball anyway, at all, but I'm just a casual fan. I listen to their podcast, Joseph. Yeah, they're pretty much a hardcore fan where it's like, <laughs> okay. And I, I laid it out. I'm a casual fan. I'll try to keep up with you guys just, just for that. And we'll see what happens, how that goes. But all this stuff was through LinkedIn, which I was, at the time, I was always thinking Facebook or Instagram or like you said, TikTok and all this sort of thing. But LinkedIn is not a bad tool, actually. It's, it's, it's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, all of these social networks, one of the things I love most about them is uh, as much as there can be a lot of noise, there can be a lot of crap and a lot of distraction. There's genuinely people who want to help out. And for me, I found Twitter and LinkedIn to be great places for that. I'll, I'll share some, uh, another story because we're talking about sports. Uh, for me, getting into sports, I'm, I'm a Raptors fan. I love F1 is a very new thing for me. Like growing up, I was never into team sports and I, I just didn't get it. As we got into selling to sales teams, there are so many sports analogies in the sales environment. Like it is just terrible. You cannot you can't walk 10 feet down the street without bumping into a, a sports analogy. And so part of my job as we worked at building this company was get better at sales analogies because I had one event where I was speaking and I was trying to use a football analogy and this is not one of my sports. And I talked about it as the uh, getting the ball to the touch zone. And I <laughs> made a great reference to the amazing quarterback, Tim, Tim Brady. Uh, and... <laughs> Oh, oh I, I was, I was savaged by our team. Uh, this was not my <laughs> cup of tea, but reaching out on Twitter and LinkedIn, I was like, Hey, I got to get better at this stuff. What are the things I need to know? Oh man. The number of people who offered amazing podcasts, amazing references, articles. And I don't think I would be as much of a rabid Raptors at F1 fan as I am now, if I hadn't actually reached out and admitted, this is something I need to get better at. Uh, and it brings me a ton of joy now. So there's a large part of my personal life that, you know, I'm very grateful that the, the networks I have on Twitter and on LinkedIn help me do that. All right. So let me ask you this before we get into our, our I guess, the industry view of, of everything. Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite F1 team right now? I want a tough one. I've got a favorite basketball team in the Raptors. Oh, that, yeah, the it's F a given. So, yeah. I know, I know. And on the F1 side, I'm so conflicted because I love a good race. So the drama last year was fantastic. You can see I've got a Ricardo hat here yes. uh, just sitting over my shoulder. But he is not having as good a season as he deserves. He's and such a personality. He is. He is. Uh, I got to admit, of all the teams, I love that Lando. Uh, it, it, just the, the dynamic between the two of them is such a delight that I wish more teams had. Uh, but they are not earning me any points on my fantasy team right now. Oh, so. <laughs> so is he still, still with McLaren? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know who my team was? And it's just only because they're always going to be the underdog for a while. Williams, there just because, you, you know what, they try so hard and they had a history of dominating the sport. Now, I know this is not an F1 podcast, but, you know, I used to watch it when I was like 
10 or 12 or 15 or something. And I remember watching some races on, on TSN and everything. And Williams was always winning and stuff like that. And then when we started getting to the F1 show on Netflix, I was like, oh, I, I look at the last reasons. Wow, they don't score anything. But then the last season, they actually scored like, what, seven or 10 points. And I was like, good for them. So And last race was pretty awesome. Yeah, they had to bring somebody up, fill in last minute. He did an incredible job. So yeah, you got to hand to them. You know, they're willing to take some chances on some new people. Exactly. So anyways, enough about the sports and <laughs> people will chat more about that after the podcast. But all right, let's talk about the, the industry itself right now. So like, what is your current opinion on the sales training industry, Joseph? And where do you think it's currently going right now? It's such an interesting question. So if I think about, uh, first off, let's let's talk about what the industry is. So sales training is a very small slice of the overall corporate training industry. And the corporate training industry is about a $12 billion industry. The reality is that that industry is only growing single digits year over year. Despite the fact there is so much evidence that really good training has a massive ROI. So when I think about the trends that is facing sales training, it's actually the same challenge that's facing the broader corporate training. It's that companies don't get it. Like they just don't understand how investing in really good training can have such a big ROI. And it's not surprising. Over the last you know, 100 years, we've changed the way we think about education. Education always used to be very apprenticeship-based. You know, I'm gonna, gonna teach you alongside me. You learn by doing. Somewhere along the way, we got into our heads that training, education is something you do before you do the work. You, you go off to college and then try and have a job. You do your onboarding, then you try and do the work. And I think the, the big challenge that sales training faces is the same challenge every corporate training has. And it's how do you bake it in to that work? How do you integrate it? You know, that work integrated learning is super important. And in this industry, I'm super excited that we have companies like Yvaro, but also a lot of other companies that take that work integrated approach. And I think we're going to see more and more training companies get those things working well for their customers. And then those companies are going to see such outsized returns. Uh, most of the evidence points that a dollar spent on good training generates $4 in return. And so those companies who use that spend wisely are going to have outsized results compared to everybody else. No, oh, that's good to hear. And let's unbox that just for a little bit. So what are these these training companies or these, like you said, the corporate training companies doing, in your opinion, wrong? Like what is their, where is their focus should be, but where is their focus currently? I, I think the challenge is that they don't challenge their customers enough, like plainly speaking. Um, if you speak to an executive who's trying to buy training, what they often end up buying is some kind of team building event, something that feels like edutainment. You know, we're going to get this really charismatic person in front of the screen, get you amped up. We're going to have some icebreakers. You're going to learn some new things, rah, rah, rah. Um, they're buying that or they're buying learning technology, which is good. Like learning management systems are good. There's a ton of great gamified platforms, but what they're not really digging into is just the philosophy. How do I constantly level up my team members? How do I keep them evolving and keeping that ball rolling? Uh, and so when they go to a training company and they say, Hey, you know, I want I want someone for my sales kickoff. I want someone for my all hands meeting. Hey, I want someone who's going to hype up my team. Training companies deliver that. You know, they're selling what the customer is trying to buy. Whereas I think if they were actually willing to challenge their customer more and say, well, what's the business impact you're hoping to achieve? What's the actual outcome? Let's sell something that helps you accomplish the outcome. Um, you know, they might not win quite as many sales, but they'll have customers who stick around longer, who, you know, don't just hire them for one event and then take off. Uh, and they wouldn't be result. They would be creating a buyer who 
no longer trust the industry. It sucks. If you talk to executives and say, have you bought training? How was it? Most of the time they're like, nah, it was a, it was a fun talking head and people were energized, but we didn't buy from them again. And that's, that's not good for the industry. Edutainment. I've never heard of that term before. That's a very interesting term. We should put that on a t-shirt or something. Edutainment. It's true because I think a lot of it, when you try to get your team together, yeah, you, you think of all these motivational speakers, games, and, you know, whatever you want to do. Let's do a weekend thing in like a conference center where we can just really learn it. But yeah, let's have all this like rah-rah stuff. But not really, but then I'm sure a lot of people enjoy those events because obviously mm -hmm. yeah, everyone's going to enjoy it. Who doesn't mind getting paid on, let's say, a few days and you're like, yeah, we get, we're playing games. They're having really awesome food here and we're laughing and we have a comedian or magician there just to really lighten up the mood. But if they can't see how that applies to the end customer, you know, then, then they're just kind of going there just for the, in, the entertainment, not the education, which is not the point, right? That's why the, you said the executives are spending this money because they want to educate their, their staff to be better at, to better equip their job, right? So interesting. So, all right, let me ask you this then. So you've been doing this a while, like you said, a lot of different businesses that you've had. Mm -hmm. I like to ask this with all my guests. What has been your biggest failure, but also your biggest success so far? That was tough. I knew you were going to ask and yeah. I'm chewing in it to, to kind of figure <laughs> out because uh, in, in many ways, I'm very happy with what we have accomplished with our business, what we've accomplished uh, as, a, as a family with my partner and I. Uh, and so identifying where the biggest stumble was, uh, was always a, a tough one. What I got to though, was kind of what impacted me most as an individual. What have I learned from most? Uh, and in one of my earliest companies, uh, it's like really early on and there's folks who are going to listen in and you're like, dude, this was a small mistake, uh, but it affected me profoundly. Um, one of our first employees that we hired as a sales rep was my best friend and roommate at the time. And it was great, super intelligent, super capable, very accomplished sales professional, brought him in. Uh, and over the course of time, the relationship didn't work out quite as well. And that's really tough because we were roommates too. But what ended up happening is it all kind of came to a head where like we really wanted him to sell the way we wanted. And I was earlier in my career as a manager, as a CEO, and I said something to the effect of like, well, no, you got to sell this way because it's my company. I'm going to call the shot. Um, the relationship didn't fully recover from that. And we didn't actually fully terminate his employment. We kind of ultimately ended up ignoring him until he stopped coming in. And then we just kind of drifted apart as employer and employee. And it was just like the worst way to treat somebody who was also a close friend, which made it even worse. And like, yes, firing an employee sucks. And there's a ton of people I'm sure who are listening in like, yeah, I've had to fire somebody, get over it. But I did it badly enough. And I realized going, reflecting on the process that it was me, not him, that it's really helped me influence the way we grow our cultures and our teams. And I think it's important that leaders can be honest with their flaws and their mistakes. Uh, even if it was for a comparatively small deal, if you can learn from that, I think you can have a profound benefit. Oh, that's great. And what about biggest success? Uh, honestly, I think uh, being really candid with ourselves about whether or not we should sell our last company. Like, it, it's really interesting. At the time that we sold it, uh, our investors didn't want to. They didn't think it was the right thing. Uh, we had some employees and some executive team members who are on either side of the fence. Uh, and we were lucky enough to have a couple of options, like raise money or sell the company. And we looked at very candidly what we thought was going to happen in the marketplace, what was going to happen in the industry, what was the kind of eventual outcome. 
And we were able to make a choice uh, based on what we thought was the best outcome for our customers and our employees. And that, I mean, we're so lucky that we had that opportunity. Uh, but I look back at it now and the company who acquired us, they've grown that location to 300 people. I look at the people who are part of that team and they've gone on to have amazing successes that they may not have if we tried to keep the company independent. Uh, and I'm really glad that we ended up making that decision and letting somebody else run the company and take it to the next level. Well, that's really interesting to hear because I think for a lot of, like you said, small business owners like, like, like ourselves, a lot of us don't think about the end state of once we're once we're ready to either move on or get out of the business. I think a lot of people say, I'm just starting. Why do I need to think of the exit, right? Mm -hmm. why, why should I think about an exit strategy? I want to really grow this thing, be the next, you know, millionaire or billionaire. Or maybe they just say, I just want to grow enough that I can, I'm making just $100,000 and I'm good. I don't need anything else. But it's interesting how you, you talked about that. So... For, do you have a, I know it's kind of going to be different depending on industry, depending on product or service, but is there any kind of guidelines that helped you make the decision whether it was better to stay with or sell off? There's all the easy things. And I'll, I'll start with those because they're easy. And I, I did them. You know, it's like, what is the current value of the company? What's my equity stake in it? If we raise, if we sell it, what's my equity stake? What's my team members? If we raise three or four more rounds, what happens? Like all the math. There's that. That's easy. Uh, the second thing that is the obvious one is like the culture alignment. Like, hey, what is the culture I'll build if I keep it independent versus the culture that'll emerge if we sell it? That's harder, but it's an obvious thing. The thing I, that we did that was different that I'm super grateful for, and I encourage every entrepreneur to do this, is we asked ourselves tough questions when we founded the company and we gave ourselves some strong commitments. So um, at the time when we founded our last company, what was going on in the Canadian ecosystem was a lot of U.S. companies buying Canadian companies and then taking them south of the border. That was just happening around us. We made a commitment to our team that we wouldn't do that. We would not like sell the company and move it to states. Like, so if you're going to work with us, that's one of our commitments. We made those commitments early on. When we were getting ready to sell the company or raise money, one of the things we realized was to do this independently, to get to the next milestone, I'd probably have to move south of the border. We'd probably be investing in our US office like four or five times more than in our Canadian office. And even if we never asked anyone to move, the heart and soul of the company would feel like it moved south of the border. Whereas by selling the company, even though we sold it to a US owner, the mandate was grow the Canadian office. We grew it from 16 people to 200 people over three years, like huge investment in the team, the culture, the people locally. Uh, and it was those easy decisions, like going back and saying, Hey, you know, we said we wouldn't move those people south. Like, what does this actually look like? It made it really easy to make a decision that was true to ourselves. Wow. That's a really good story, man. It's like, think about it, thinking about it like that way. I was like, Oh, my, he was saying, we're not going to go to the U S I'm thinking. I was going to push you on that. I'm like, so Jeff Bezos or Zuckerberg just so happened to say, you know, we want to offer you this, but we're going to take it over. We're going to take it over here. I was kind of curious, like, Joseph say, would he say yes to that? I know financially it would make, make, make really make sense, but I like how you actually really looked at it and you really asked yourselves the tough questions, at least at the beginning. Because like <laughs> you said, most people don't think about that and, and it's unfortunate. And then when the decision comes, they don't know what to qualify it is because like you said they can may, they may be able to do the math they can find someone to say okay how much is my company worth and okay so i won't take anything more but then i guess what people forget to realize that when you are the boss 
it's not just you. If you're a solopreneur, okay, it's not a big deal. You can sell it off, whatever. But when you start having people report to you and your staff and all that sort of stuff, you know, you're responsible for their paychecks pretty much, right? Like, so how yeah. they put food on the table, how they pay for their mortgage or the rent, it's coming from you. So, you know, it's it's not as easy as people think, right? People think, oh yeah, I could sell it. But when you know the people you've worked with and who've all been through the trenches with you building the company to where it's at this state where, wow, we're getting an offer to potentially, you know, from a big company to buy it or something. It's not as easy as people think about. So. Hey you, do you need a voiceover? Well, look no farther. Northway Capital Group has your answer. Commercials and explainer videos, AVR and voicemail, health and wellness, corporate training and e-learning, announcements, documentaries, and biography. Contact us on social media or email us at northwaycapitalgroup at gmail.com. Now it's time for tips from the pro. All right, now we're going to hit our tips from the pro segment here. So this is for people who are saying, okay, I want to do something similar to what uh, Joseph's doing. Um, maybe not exactly what you're doing, but oh, I want sales training. Okay, corporate training, that might be good. So in your opinion, question number one here is in the whole corporate, I'll, I'll, I'll make it the corporate training space or just say business training, right? Because it could be small, it could be big. Are there any niches you think that would be a good starter for someone who wants to get into this? Uh, well, one of the things that we did when we founded this company is we took a look at the, where that labor gap was, like where are people hiring, where there's a big demand from employers and a low supply. And so we honed in on sales in tech. So B2B SaaS is growing so fast. They need another quarter million sales professionals and less than 2% of any colleges or universities are training in sales. Anytime you find a gap like that, and the bigger it is, the bigger the opportunity, that's where I would start. I, we didn't start like from, you know, what do we enjoy selling? What do we enjoy training? We started from the need. If there's a need, the customer will pull you into the right thing. So if you're focusing on training or any services, really focusing on that gap of the need, that's where I'd start. Nice. Okay. And do you, like, are there any opportunities for, for someone to start off and maybe targeting more smaller companies? I think when people think of corporate training, just the word corporate, they're thinking of like, oh, like all these big, these multi-billion dollars or multi-million dollar firms. I'm like, is that too big to start off with? Or like, should I just start with like a, maybe a mom and pop shop that maybe sells flowers across the street? Would they be, should I start with maybe smaller ones and finding those ways? What do you think? So the thing I'd actually pivot in is, is not so much think about the size of the company or the size of the buyers. Think about the size of the pain. So a, a good example, uh, you, you mentioned like a flower shop, you know, how, painful is it to that flower shop owner if they don't necessarily have the right training? Um, like maybe their off-season flower sales aren't quite as high, or maybe they need to like cut a shift. I mean, it's probably a, a slightly moderate pain. If you got a company though, that's got to grow, they need to, like us, we're trying to triple in a year. If we don't have the right skills or the right people, we are going to miss that by such a big mile. That's an agonizing pain. Like that whole analogy of like, you know, cut off a finger, like how painful is it <laughs> for us though? Where we honed in on in terms of size was that we focused on individual career success. Like our primary customer, the person who usually signs up, pays for our services is the individual who's trying to take control of their career. And somebody who feels like they've been left behind, they have $40,000 in student debt. They know they're going to flip jobs every year or two, and there's no one there to help them. That is some miserable, unfortunate, not fair pain. And so we focused on solving that. and. 
you can find an audience where there's a, a strong uh, a strong pain signal, then it's really easy to to build a solution and help them, and that's going to drive so much success for you too. That's great to hear. And so, what next question? What resources do you use to keep on top of the industry? It's an interesting one. I mean, primarily social media. I, it, I mean, it sounds really glib, and I'm, I'm sorry if that sounds flippant. Uh, <laughs> but you follow the right leaders. I follow the right, uh, you know, your tags, uh, connecting with people, and coming to it with a mindset of like thirst for knowledge. Like, uh, I, I could, if you're considering starting a company, considering starting off, here's the tip. I would try everything I can to break oneself of that doom scrolling habit. Like you, you hop onto Instagram, you're late at night, you're like, oh, I'm just gonna read this thing, I'm gonna watch that, you're scrolling. Ditch that and try and replace it with just that thirst to knowledge. It's like set up some Google alerts, save those articles. When you're stuck and you got 20 minutes to kill, you just pull those articles up, learn that new thing. And if you have that habit, your social media channels will funnel the right information to you. Oh, that's a really good strategy. I never really thought about that. The mindless scrolling, you know, like a lot of people, they do that. And it's true. It's it's very easy, right? And that, that's the downside of social media is that, you know, they never, remember when you go to a website or anything, once you scroll to the bottom of the page, that's it. That's the bottom of the page. Yeah. Social media, there ain't no bottom of the page. You just, no. you could scroll back all the way to 2012 if you really want to, right? If you really, if you yeah. really keep scrolling enough. But that's interesting that you talked about that. So what, what I'd share though, like double click on that is... All of these platforms have wicked smart algorithms. Use that to your advantage. Like, it don't don't get me wrong. I mean, I love the next video of a stupid inept kitten or puppy. Like, that's hilarious. <laughs> but if that's the only thing I look at on social media, that's the only thing they're going to give me. Right. Whereas if I go and I hunt or I search for content about, like for me, I search about career success. I, I search about training. I search about like employment. Just on the weekend. Uh, in the, my, my Twitter feed, what was recommended to me was an article for an incredible pre-funded opportunity to sell more product into one of the states. And that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't trained the algorithm that I care about that stuff. So yeah, get it on Interesting. It. All right, next question here. So when you when you started your firm, is there any other, like, I guess, insurance that you guys need to wear aside from like WSIB and all that sort of stuff? But for when it comes to sales or anything like business services like that, is there any special insurance for that? Um, there's not the same kind of insurance for a compliance thing, but like most companies, you've got the errors and emissions, you've got your health benefits, you've got your cybersecurity, you've got all of those kind of routine commercial insurance, uh, but there's nothing unique to our industry. Okay, good to know, because sometimes they don't know, right? They just don't know, should I just go with just a simple umbrella? And like I said, we're not an insurance podcast, but just say, is an umbrella enough? And maybe, right, depending on what you're going to be doing. So next question here. So what is your strategy for dealing with difficult clients? And you know, I, I'm going to use the analogy of, okay, so let's say you have a client that's trying to take your course. They are, you know, they're trying to grow within their company. They're trying to grow within their company. Let's say they're more of a entrepreneur and they're just saying, and and you start to notice as your discussions with them, they're like, oh, okay, they've been to five different companies in five different years, right? So it's like, they start off and they're like, they love the company because it's all, oh, it's so good. And I'm learning all this stuff. But after years, like, oh, I'm not getting paid enough. Oh, I don't like the politics. But then when the problem is, is that if for some reason, this particular client, you know, all seems to be leaving at almost for the same reason. It's always the company's fault. Have you ever had to deal with someone where it's like, okay, you need to take your, your own responsibility for why you, why you're, you're finding dissatisfaction in every single company that you're, that you're working for. Cause eventually maybe that odd one will be, okay, it's a bad company. But if you have five in a row, three in a row, eight in a row, you're like, are you sure it's the company? Uh, 
So the the example that you painted, we haven't had that exact one. Okay. Um, and and part of the reason is our uh, our methodology is it kind of tackles some of those things heads on. Oh, perfect. Um, so number one, first off, most people when they graduate from college or university, you know, three quarters of people take a job far from their field of study. And, and I'm sure like myself, you, people listening in, it's the same thing. It's like, well, I studied X and I'm doing the Y. Like, why, why the heck do I do that? Like, yes, that happens. But that's a really good evidence, piece of evidence that we're doing something wrong like as a society where there's a spark of interest, of passion. Like, I want to go be a kinesiologist or a scientist and... I'm working as a bartender or a flight attendant or, or something different just to make ends meet. People lose track of that spark. So for us in our curriculum, one of the things we double down on is that idea of finding your why, what actually helps you feel motivated as a person. Now I shared my, that idea of helping people lead fulfilling roles. Um, I'll share another one to give you a really good example. One of our members joined us. And his only career after school has, was as a pastor, 20 years as a pastor. And he came to us in a moment of uncertainty in his career. And as we dug into that, you know, that idea of why, what he loved is helping people realize their dreams. His self-description is like, I would love to be a defender of dreams. And when we helped him find work with a company, that sells tools to entrepreneurs to help them do things they never could before, help that entrepreneur get more out of their time. He realized every single day he's helping these entrepreneurs build their dreams and he feels so fulfilled in that work. And so that challenge that you described, that idea of like, well, it's, it's not me, it's them. Oh, but it's really me. Let's help them navigate that. If you can actually help someone identify what are the things that are their intrinsic motivators and then help them aim their career at the right place, those challenges don't often happen. Yeah, I mean, because I think for a lot of people, they 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 follow the name. So whatever industry they're in, you know, they know who the biggest players are. So they feel like, okay, when I graduate, totally. or if I'm, I have to go after the biggest names. But like you said, if it just doesn't jive with your intrinsic value of what you really think it should be, you know, I, I think they almost want to do it just for the sake of putting on a resume. Mm -hmm. right? Just say, oh, look, I've worked with all these Fortune multi-billion dollar companies, Fortune 500 companies, and that's why you have to pay me so much money. But if you are miserable the entire time, it doesn't mean that doesn't make any difference, right? Because at the end of the day, it's you. Because I remember there was a time when I used to work before and I would always, you know, there's one company, I had a really bad boss and I was like really upset. And uh, I remember my, and the thing is, parents seem to know when their children <laughs> yeah. are upset. Even if I say everything is fine, they said, can you seem high strung? Yes, I am high strung, right? <laughs> and same with my wife, Mrs. K. She notices when things are wrong. And, uh, and I remember using, she was saying, okay, you just gotta, the other thing is you gotta write it out. And I, then mm. I, I looked at my mom and in loving way, I said, mom, I appreciate that. But you know, you're retired now. I still have another, <laughs> you know, 20, 30 years or 20 years before I can retire. Right. So it's, it's easy to say, and loved ones are, you know, they, they try to help out. Cause what, who is going to, who's going to tell them, you know what? Yeah. Quit. If you're a parent, quit that, you know, stable job you have. It's throw that it's, away, but you know, it's not, that's not what, that's not what the parents are going to do, especially if you're, if you're from a culture that's very, you know, you got to find that nine to five long-term, you know, whatever it is. Right. So it's, it's funny when you think about stuff like that. It, it totally is. And what's so funny is it, today, right now, when people go on a career journey, they 
they try to pick up some education from their school. They go to advice. They go to Reddit. They go to their parents. They, they try to find you know, a job that's posted. So they go to Indeed or they try to network their way. So they use LinkedIn. You know, we, we really do aim to be that kind of one-stop shop to help people with their journeys. And what's so fascinating is that when people get to those moments of crises, it's like, hey, hey, when you, when you're in that last job, you're like, you're stressed out or you hate your boss. People get all that self-dialogue. You know, is it them? Is it me? You know, they're, they, they're not appreciating me enough or whatever it is. And if you can actually help people go back to those basics, that motivator, you know, and realize like, maybe it's not the company, like the company's doing the thing and my role lets me do the thing that gets me motivated. But the communication dynamic of this boss is what's driving me nuts. You can tackle that. You don't have to throw away the whole career journey. Yeah. Or vice versa. Like you're saying, my boss is amazing. The company's good. And I'm just not feeling fulfilled. It's not delivering the right thing. It, then you're making a decision on the right factor. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's true. Right. And I remember one of, one of the things that stuck on me I, at a major consulting firm that I was there for about almost a couple of years, I remember interviewing with this, with the director. He's like, okay. He said, Ken, you should not be in this role for the next, like you should be in this role for two years max. If you have not moved on in two years, whether it's move up move sideways, either we failed you or you failed you. It's one of those things, right? So very interesting to hear that stuff here. So but let me ask you this now. I'm almost done with this uh, tips in the pro second. So what has been the funniest story you've had running your companies? Oh my goodness. The funniest stories. Um, well, keep it family friendly there, Joseph. Just make sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, there you go. I've got a fun family friendly one. There so we go. Our company's journey is interestingly enough, not a family company, but also kind of a family company. So with my, one of my previous startups, one of the people that I hired early on was my youngest sister. And I mean, I gotta be honest, she had the toughest interview process ever because didn't want to give her a, you know, to get a, a free pass uh, right. to do that. Um, so she's also one of the co-founders in the company. Uh, during the course of this company's journey, the, our middle sister, the one who's between us, was going through a career journey and ended up being one of our earliest members. She's now actually one of our instructors. So we do, we have three siblings in the company. What's really funny though, is periodically it happens with new employees, with new customers, we, because we try to keep family out of it. We don't bring it up. We have very different roles. And it, because we have different last names, people often don't realize, and then it'll be in a live call in front of customers or peers where you see suddenly someone gets that aha moment like oh my goodness you're related <laughs> and it happens every every month or two it's like and it could be with an investor with a customer or on a podcast and it, we're not going out of our way to hide it but it's just this moment of astonishment and realization and always the person on the other end doesn't know how to deal with it and uh, i gotta i gotta admit we're probably not the most helpful in that moment and we'll let that pregnant pause just kind of be up and uncomfortable pause. <laughs> so we, we try to enjoy it and have some good fun. Well, yeah, it's almost like if someone was trying to vent and just like, oh, you guys are all related. Like, oh man, I can't badmouth this person now because I'm talking to the potential sibling of of the of the boss or vice versa, or it could be anything. So that's very interesting. So all right, let's move on to the last question before we have hit to the more fun rapid fire round here. So what in how do you actually balance everything? Like Joseph, you you've grown so many companies and Obviously, for a lot of people who want to start with anything, they're working crazy hours. So how do you find balance in life? Or what would you get? What tips did you give them if you had to start over again that made it so successful? Um, I mean, really lucky that I've got a partner who is 
very empathetic and I can have very open conversations with. Um, I don't mean she like picks up the slack or does things differently. It's that we'll actually talk about what we each need as people. And that's helpful. I'm, I'm a very introverted person. My job requires really? me to be extroverted. <laughs> like, as a CEO, I got to talk to people. Um, <laughs> but I mean, if I'm going to regenerate, I'm going to like sit in the bath and read a book or, or listen to a podcast and just be alone. And, and that's hard with small kids. Uh, but we can talk about that. And that's really helpful. Uh, in terms of maintaining that, like that, that's a necessary ingredient. But I think the thing that's unlocked it the most for me, I got some incredible perspective from a CFO that I got to know through a nonprofit, uh, Lois Norris, incredible CFO. She spoke about how people misinterpret work-life balance as a 50-50 thing. Whereas when she thinks about work-life balance, she wants her kids to see that she is just as fulfilled and energized by her work as she wants them to be. And I think the same thing I'm like, I want my kids to see that I love what I'm doing, that I'm energized. If I choose to spend a couple of hours working on something, you know, I'm not regretting it. I'm not complaining about it. You know, I'm not moaning about how difficult work is. I'm doing it because I'm energized. And if I'm putting in so many hours that I actually don't think I'm having fun anymore, I'm not saying the right example. So I got to tone back. And so that definition of balance, it's not about 50-50, it's about how do I make sure I love what I'm doing? So when my kids see it, they've got a good role model. That's been the right framework for me. That's a really good perspective, actually, because I, I didn't realize how much I enjoyed podcasting since I started this thing back in January of 2022. Mm. Right now, although my kids noticed that you know, when dad's recording to not really come into my office. And the first thing my son said to me after I was doing this podcast and stuff, I was like, dad, are you trying to be famous? <laughs> said, no. <laughs> not trying to be famous. It's just that I'm enjoying doing this. And I can say right now, I could say if I win the, the Lotto Max or the 649 or just the lottery in general, I would still keep podcasting because I enjoy this stuff, right? This is mm -hmm. the fun part of my job, not editing, not, you know, marketing other things, but actually talking to really interesting people and hearing their stories. That's, that's fun to me. So, you know, even if, you know, I retire or whatever, I'd still want to do something, even if it's just me just solo podcasting it, that still would be fun. So uh, but I'll, I'll make this last point. I know we're running a little time right here is that you talked about having a great partner and Mrs. K has actually been a really great. And I'll, I'll tell you this funny story here is that, you know, a lot of, especially in the, in the beginning, a lot of uh, couples get stretched when it comes to mm -hmm. starting their business. And, you know, sometimes, you know, they don't want to upset each other. So they just hold everything in. Right. And obviously I'm very transparent. I'm like, I'm, I'm a shoot from the hip kind of guy. I said, okay, if something's wrong, you got to say something, right. You got to, cause I don't want it to fester. And then we end up separating because of something we could have addressed in the beginning. So mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes maybe monthly or quarterly, we'll have what I call, I'll, I'll call it the B word session where we can just say, okay, if something was wrong, let's just get it out in the open. So we're not going to talk about it again. And, you know, there were times where we didn't have to do anything, but the funny thing about Miss Kate, she picks the worst time to want to talk about it. And you know, when there's a time it comes, Joseph, is when you're lying down in bed, you're exhausted and you can feel something in your car. <laughs> you can feel that they're upset about something. And we're like, what's wrong? Nothing. Are you sure? Yeah, we'll talk about it tomorrow. I'm like, I can't sleep. Can we just talk about it now? So it's always funny about how those things, but just really keeping that communication levels there is, I think is very important. So, hey, do you need an error-free website? Do you need transcriptions that's accurate and on time? Would you like to remove noise from your video or audio recording? 
Do you need a spokesperson for your business? If so, we can help. At Northway Capital Group, we are happy to announce that we are now providing website testing services, audio transcriptions, and audio cleanup, as well as spokesperson services. We would love to help you on your next project. Contact us for more information at northwaycapitalgroup at gmail.com. Now it's time for the rapid fire round. All right, let's let's wrap this up here. This is the rapid fire round where we're just going to be more loose stuff all aside from all the serious business talk that we have here. So, all right, question number one, Joseph, you ready? I am. Let's go. All right, what would be the what would the fifteen year old self be thinking you'd be doing right now? My fifteen year old self would be laughing his butt off because I'm running a training company, and when I did my vocational interest survey when I was fifteen, the bottom of the list was teaching. <laughs> My 15-year-old self would be having a riot with what I'm doing now. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. Next question here. Would you rather wear a monitor that beeps when you're lying or beeps when you're attracted to someone? Oh, beeps that I'm lying. Yeah. Try to be honest. Something that keeps me honest about that would be really helpful. <laughs> exactly. All right. Worst sequel ever made for a movie. Worst and best, Evil Dead 2. Evil Dead 2? It, it was amazing, but it wasn't a real sequel. It was like a remake, but it was so good and so <laughs> terrible. So yes, <laughs> Evil Dead 2. Mine was Mortal Kombat. I don't know if you remember Mortal Kombat back in the day, back in 95, when it came out with a movie. That was the, the first Mortal Kombat movie, I think, in the mid-90s, I thought was awesome. Right. And that was the first movie I remember as a, as a teenager that I went to the theater twice to watch it. So I got super excited <laughs> watching it. And then I found out that they're doing Mortal Kombat 2. Oh my God. Yeah. It was horrible. Half the cast was gone. And I was like, what? What happened to all these people? That was a setup for disappointment. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I was, oh God, I hate that movie. But uh, all right. You have a sandwich named after you. What's on it? And what would it be called? <sighs> Well, it's going to be called Joseph Fung because it's named after Joseph me. Joseph Fung, okay. There you go. But I'd have to go with just some incredible Montreal smoked meat, some sauerkraut. It probably really resembles a Reuben, but it's got to have something different on there because it's named after me. It's called Joseph Fung. Of course it's going to be I different. Know. There you go. Just throw a pickle uh, on the side or something. I don't know. I know. It, a Reuben is an amazing sandwich. I don't know if you can make it better. Uh, so yeah, let's go with that. What bread though? You know, that's, that's what we'd go with. I would like, normally you do the rye on it, but you know, maybe, maybe some kind of like a, a nicer oat loaf or something. Chibata is always a, is a nice one that I like, but I don't know if I'd make, put on a Reuben sandwich. I might have to try to do it, but okay. The Joseph Fung. Excellent. All right. Last question. I think, you know, oh, there you go. A good malt bread. There we sandwich. go. Malt bread. It's firm. It's sweet. That's good. Okay. There you go. <laughs> I have to go make one now and validate it. There you go. All right. So last question. I asked this to all my guests. I'm sure you're ready for this now. What is your theme song and why? When you're walking down that sidewalk, that song hits. People know Joseph Fung is on the way. Oh, Papa's Got a Brand New Pig Bag by Pig Bag. <laughs> there is nothing that is going to amp it up more. And it is just always dancing right on the edge of chaos. I love oh, that song. Man. Oh, awesome. So any last uh, thoughts or any advice you want to give to our listeners out there? I mean, aside from like career success is a real thing, chase your dream, go for it. There's always the room to do it. Jump in with both feet. Uh, and if there's ever anything I can help out with, you know, reach out. Uh, I'm sure you've got the social media handles in the, the description and the bio. So yeah, feel free to reach out. Always happy to help. 
Well, you know, throw it out there anyway. So just throw it out there. Where can, they, uh, where can people find you? LinkedIn and Twitter are great. Those are my two favorite channels. I'm at Joseph Fung on both of those. Uh, and then you can always hit us up uh, and see any of our content at uvaro.com, U-V-A-R-O.com. Oh, thanks, for, thanks for being on the show, Joseph. It was a lot of fun. Dude, my pleasure. This is a blast. All right. Do you have a small business story to share? The SME Stories Podcast is looking for entrepreneurs to share their tales of success, failure, and everything. If you're interested in being a guest on our show or know someone would be a great fit, please contact us at Northway Capital Group at gmail.com. That's Northway Capital Group at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the SME Stories Podcast, which is owned by Northway Capital Group. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Northway Capital Group.